Have you ever been caught daydreaming? Have you ever been caught either at work or at school and you know you were supposed to be focused on a task and you know you were supposed to be sitting at a desk and doing what you were supposed to do, but you caught yourself daydreaming? You caught yourself letting your mind wander and imagining a little bit about any different type of scenario. It probably depended on what age you are. You know, for a child, it, the daydream to have might be to be a professional sports star someday, a professional baseball player or football player, or maybe a movie star, something you want to be when you grow up. Maybe if you're a teenager, your daydreams are more about getting A's on all your finals without having to study. Uh, maybe it involves being surprised by your parents on your 16th birthday with a brand new car. Uh, I had that daydream for a while, and I bet there's some parents in here like mine who told me just to keep on dreaming. And... Uh, you, so that might be the result. Or if you're a little bit older, you might be daydreaming about that one special person you want to meet if you haven't met them already. Maybe about the family you'll have, about your children, or about grandchildren. We like to daydream. We like to imagine. And that's a gift that we've been given, the ability to imagine, to envision something that doesn't exist yet, but that could exist, to imagine the way things could be. Recently, after several interviews and hours of meetings and note-taking, a commission in Washington, D.C. finished the 9-11 Commission report. And one of the phrases that they used in this report I thought was interesting. They said that America had suffered from a failure of imagination. In other words, they said that because of what had happened up till that point, America hadn't really imagined all the ways that we could expect an attack. They hadn't really imagined every avenue, and therefore, we were unprepared. I want you to think about that concept for a second, the failure of imagination. And I want us to separate it from any kind of political context or historical context. I want us to think of it spiritually. Because that phrase, even though it's kind of a unique one, and we might not have heard it before, really gets at the heart of a spiritual principle. A failure of imagination. The verse in your handout is the same as the verse on the screen. Genesis 18, 14. And it's a familiar one to those of us who know the story of Abraham. In fact, it's probably one you studied growing up in Sunday school. But Abraham has been promised in chapter 17 that he's going to bear a child in his old age. And you remember he couldn't believe that he being 100 years old and Sarah being 90 would be able to conceive and bear a child. And so in chapter 18 and verse 14, God has come to Abraham and he's come in the form of three visitors that come to Abraham and they repeat that promise. And so this time it's Sarah who overhears it and can't help but laugh at the thought of having a child at her age. And notice what happens. Let's begin in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And listen to this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. You see, neither Abraham or Sarah could imagine what it would be like to have a son at their age. They experienced the failure of imagination. God had promised them something. He had promised it to them repeatedly, and yet they couldn't imagine it happening. It defied the laws of nature. It defied everything they'd ever seen. It defied their human reason. And so came the failure of of imagination, and we know what happened. 
We know that they were blessed with a son. We know that his name was Isaac, and his descendants would become the Israelites. God was able to make a nation out of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who didn't believe that God could do it. And it's in the context of that nation, I want us to look at another failure of imagination this evening. For a few minutes, I'd like for us to think about what our pew packers sang about just a few moments ago. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan, and ten were bad and two were good. And that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about this evening. And let's see if we can't take some principles from their trip into Canaan, from their journey into Canaan, and see if we can apply those in our lives. You see, when those spies went into Canaan in Numbers chapter 13, they were given specific instructions. If you would turn with me to Numbers chapter 13, we'll begin just with the first couple of verses. And we'll be flipping over between here and Deuteronomy, the first chapter, which gives us some extra insight into the story. But Numbers chapter 13 is where we're going to begin. Let's start with the first two verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And then let's skip on down as they list all the names. You'll probably want to notice that Caleb is mentioned in verse 6. And then in verse 8, Hosea, the son of Nun, who would later be called Joshua, is mentioned. And you'll remember that Caleb and Joshua were the two spies that didn't give the negative report and that were allowed to be uh, entered into the promised land. So let's look down and see the further instructions that Moses gives them. In verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And so we see that they carry out those orders. In verse 21, they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes and carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and showed to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now that was an extended reading, but that gives us a perspective on what is happening with the 
to Canaan and what happened when they came back out. And if we look closely, I think we can find several principles that teach us how to avoid a failure of imagination. Number one, we see that we can avoid a failure of imagination as long as we make sure we don't fail to see what God has given us. You see, the first step to having a failure of imagination is to fail to see what God has already given to us. Do you remember the first couple of verses we read in Numbers 13? Look at what God says there in verse 2. He says, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. You know, God had already given the land to the Israelites. Have you ever thought about that? These spies were sent in, but God had already given the land to Israel. If you flip over to the first chapter of Deuteronomy, we see Moses retelling the story, and we see the same thing happening. As they were commanded to enter Canaan, we see that as, as we go through beginning in, uh, specifically in verse 19, Moses says that they departed from Oreb, they went through all that terrible wilderness, they've come to the mountains, and God had sent them, set them through all of these struggles. And as we scan down, we see in verse 22, every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Now remember, Moses is telling them, God has brought us this far. He's brought us through all this wilderness. And now you came to me and said, let's send out spies. Here in Deuteronomy, we see that it was to find which way they should go up, which order of cities they should conquer. And so in verse 23, the plan pleased me well. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up to the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. So we see from Deuteronomy that not only were the twelve spies sent in not to decide whether or not the land was theirs, God had promised them the land, but they were sent in because God was agreeing with an idea that the people had come up with. God consented to let the people send in the spies, but in Deuteronomy we see that it was the people's idea. They wanted to send in spies. And their job was not to determine whether or not the land should be theirs, their job was to determine what the people were like, what the cities were like. Because you see, the land of promise was something we find all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. When God speaks to Moses through that burning bush, you remember that God tells Moses that he is going to lead the Israelites into a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the entire reason they were delivered out of Egypt, was to this promised land. This was not a new idea. This was not a sudden development. This was the goal. And they had reached the promised land. God had given it to them. And when they sent in the spies, the spies failed to remember what God had already given them. I think it's interesting. Their job wasn't to decide whether or not to enter the land, but that's what they ended up doing. In fact, because of these men and the negative report they spread, that generation was not able to enter the promised land. As we bring this principle into the 21st century, I want us to ask ourselves a difficult question. Are we overlooking any gift that God has already given us? Is there anything we have in our lives that we are overlooking? One of my favorite books in the New Testament is the book of 1 John. I like it because in that book, John writes a message of hope to people who were struggling. They were confused because some people were telling him you had to have a certain kind of knowledge in order to be a Christian, special knowledge that only a few people have. And John is reinforcing the simplicity of the gospel, the simple message of the good news. And you know what I love about that book, that book is in the first chapter, in First John chapter 1 and verse 7, he tells us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship 
one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And later on in that same chapter, in verse 9, we find out that if we are, are asking God for forgiveness, that He is faithful and just to forgive us. You see, John tells the first century Christians, that there's no special knowledge that comes apart from God's Word. And once we understand God's Word, once we obey Him, we walk in that light, we have fellowship with one another, and we have the blood of Jesus continually cleansing us of our sin. John was writing the first century Christians and letting them know they can be sure of their eternal destination. Not because of anything they had done, but because of God's promise. It's the same promise that Paul would write about in Titus Chapter 1 and verse 2, he describes it as an eternal hope in which it is impossible for God to lie. And so if we know in 1 John that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from our sins, if we know that if we ask for forgiveness, God is faithful and just to forgive us, and we also know that God cannot lie, we can be sure of our eternal destination. God has given us the gift of salvation. When is the last time we just stopped and reflected on that? God has given us the gift of salvation. Now, obviously, in the first chapter of John, he is stressing the fact that they need to walk in the light. A faithful life is obviously necessary to have that blood of Jesus wash us of our sins. But just think about that. If we are faithful to God, God will be faithful to us. We can know our eternal destination. Just reflect on that for a moment. You see, if we overlook what God has given us, we won't be very effective as Christians. Can you imagine trying to share the gospel with someone if you weren't sure about where you were ending up for eternity? How can we be effective at sharing God's Word if we're not exactly sure where we stand? You see, the blessing of being able to know our eternal destination is we can share it with others. A hope that's a definite reality. We know God has promised us. God has given us the gift of salvation. It's interesting, God has given several several other blessings that probably this week we focused on more than any other time of the year. In fact, you may even have made a list of the blessings God has given you, the things you are thankful for. I want to ask you a question. A year from now, November the 25th, 2005, what would you like to be on your list for that Thanksgiving? You see, when we understand what God has given us, when we understand the gifts He's already bestowed on us, we can envision what could be in the future. We can envision what God could do through us and do for us and bless us with. And so if we understand what God gave us this year, we can cast a vision for next year. And we can be praying about it right now. We can be praying about what we want to be on our Thanksgiving 2005 100 list of things that we're thankful for. We can pray about what we want on that list beginning today. A few weeks ago on Harvest Sunday, we saw a slideshow of several new families that have placed membership with us. We've seen souls come to Christ that were both baptized and then some come back that were restored. You know that with a knowledge of those blessings, we can begin praying now for even more in 2005. God has blessed us tremendously to have so many people here on a Sunday night, but there's still room for more. We could begin right now praying that at this time next year, God would bless us with so many new faces, so many souls to reach for Him, that we could pack this auditorium. In his book, James would say in chapter 4 and verse 2 that we do not have because we do not ask. Could it be that there are some blessings 
that are within our grasp if only we'd ask for them? Could it be, both individually and as a church, that there are some things within our grasp if we'd only realize what God has done and reach even further? You see, if these spies had realized the gift God had given them, they wouldn't have been afraid to walk into Canaan. They would realize this has already been promised, promised from the beginning. This is what we've worked for. But instead, they became afraid. They became afraid, secondly, because they began to focus on the size of their challenges rather than the size of their God. Do you notice how they go on and on about the height of those who are around there? I mean, they just seem to really dwell on the size of Canaan's inhabitants. And I think it's interesting that in the first few verses, in verse 28, they describe the people as strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and the cities of Anak, who is a famous warrior, were there. But then by the time we get down to verse 32 and 33, they're describing the people as giants. They use the word Nephilim that's only used one other place in the Old Testament to describe these people. They'd gone from being strong and fortified cities to being giants. We were like grasshoppers. Isn't that the way bad news is? It's kind of easy to exaggerate, get blown out of proportion. And so these negative thoughts just kept snowballing. And over the voice of Caleb, who prompted by faith was saying, we can enter the land, they were saying, have you seen the size of these people? And it's interesting, they were so focused on the size of its inhabitants, they forgot about the size of their God. They were comparing the Canaanite strength to their strength. Look at verse 31. All the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. There's no mention here of them being stronger than God. It's they're stronger than us. They're stronger than we are. What are we going to do? Have you ever noticed that in the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites several times, that He is the God that brought them out of Egypt? It's really interesting. As you read through, especially in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, God often tells the Israelites, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. Have you ever wondered why He does that? I just scanned through the four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I found at least eight times in Exodus, ten times in Leviticus, four times in Numbers, and fifteen times in Deuteronomy, God reminds the Israelites of being in Egypt and that He's the God who got them out of Egypt. Not to mention the times Moses talks about it. And so even though there are some passages that are parallel passages and there are some repeated statements, in those four books, that is 37 times, God reminds the people He's the God that brought them out of Egypt. You'd think if they witnessed the ten plagues, you'd think if they crossed in the, Red, in the parted Red Sea, you'd think they'd remember He was the God that brought them out of Egypt. But you remember what happened every time they encountered a difficulty. When they were going without food, they thought they were going to die. When they were going without water, they thought they were going to die. And now they were set to enter into the promised land and they thought there's no way we can make it. They let the size of their challenges make them forget about the size of their God. When we think of New Testament examples of this principle, Peter is the first one who pops into my mind. You remember him walking on the water as the storm was going on around him? And the only time he faltered, the only time he sunk, was when he started focusing on the storm rather than on Jesus. When he let these challenges overwhelm him and make him forget about the God that he served. A few months ago, I was going through classroom number 10 downstairs where the Wednesday night ladies class, among others, meets. And they had a quote on the board that I thought was just very intriguing and it stayed with me ever since then. The quote read simply this, Stop telling God how big your storm is and start telling the storm how big your God is. And I haven't forgotten that the past few months. 
Tonight, I don't want to downplay the challenges we face and the challenges we'll face in the upcoming year. The difficulties we don't even know about that lie ahead, I don't want to downplay those at all. But I want to remind us that God is bigger than anything we'll face. And it's interesting that these men who were so convinced it was impossible to overcome the land of Canaan, they were so convinced that there's no way they could overtake this land, are descendants of a man who had a child when he was 100 years old, and he didn't think it was possible. Isn't that interesting? They are descendants of someone who had a child because God decided, remember in, all the way back in the book of Genesis, that is anything too hard for the Lord? You can almost hear that kind of echo through the years. Is anything too hard for the Lord? These men were putting limits on God's power. The very God who had allowed Isaac to be born and allowed a nation of people to come through that line. You see, they were comparing their own strength to the Canaanites. And I'm convinced that if we start comparing our own power to the problems we face, we will be mortified. We will be terrified. And it may be different things for different people. Just fill in the blank. What you are facing, what you are struggling with. Maybe, maybe it's an addiction that you're struggling to overcome. Maybe it's the temptation that just keeps haunting you every day, week in and week out. Maybe it's a struggle to share the gospel with other people. Maybe it's a struggle to develop more spiritually. Whatever it is, if we were to face those temptations and those trials alone, we would be scared out of our wits. We would be mortified. But if we have God on our side, we can remember that God is bigger than any problem we face, and we can hear the words God spoke to Abraham. Is anything impossible? Is anything too hard for the Lord? One of our favorite stories growing up, if you're like me, was probably David and Goliath. Now here, David is fighting a literal giant. And what was David's source of strength? Was he just courageous? Was, was he just foolish running into a fight? I think neither of those things is true. In fact, I'd like to read what David says to Saul all the way in 1 Samuel in chapter 17 and verse 37. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. It wasn't that the giant wasn't frightening. It wasn't that Goliath wasn't intimidating. It was that fear of Goliath had been replaced in David's heart. He had replaced that fear with a bigger and better fear, a fear of the Lord. If we can replace the fears in our lives with a fear of God, if we can make sure we focus on the size of our God and not the size of our problems, we can avoid a failure of imagination. Over the past few days, Catherine and I were able to spend some time with my family in Michigan. And Friday night, we attended a Detroit Pistons basketball game. And don't worry, we all made it out in one piece. Everything was okay. But as we were sitting way at the top, we looked around and saw that there were about 20,000 or so in attendance. Approximately 20,000, give or take a few. And so we started to look at all the people that were crowded around. And I remembered that at the beginning of 2004, I'd heard the prediction that over 10,000 people would be moving into this, this area, into the Mount Juliet and the West Wilson area. Not that many families, but that many individuals would be moving in in some form or another. Somewhere around here, we see subdivisions and houses flying up all over the place. And so Catherine and I halved that, that arena and just focused on about half that looked to be around approximately 10,000 people. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? 
that many people are coming into our area. And the challenge is so great. And if you looked at all those people and thought, there's no way that we can reach all those in this area, in Mount Juliet, in the surrounding communities, there's no way that we could reach all these people in Wilson County. You can almost hear God saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? All things are possible. Another quote that God would give, give Abraham, all things are possible with God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, there are people moving in faster than we can keep up with them. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, I don't know if I could talk to my friend about, about God because then, then I might risk losing our friendship. Things might be strange between us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God is bigger than any problem we can face. And as soon as we can replace our fear of our challenges with a bigger and better fear of God, we can avoid that failure of imagination. Also, these spies forgot what God could accomplish through imperfect followers. We read later that Caleb and Joshua are the only ones allowed to enter into the promised land. We just read Caleb's expression as he stood up and he made a statement of faith that they surely could take the land. The other spies were not allowed to enter. In fact, the Bible is filled with examples of God working through imperfect people. Do you remember Gideon? A coward whom God turned into a courageous leader that led the Israelites to victory in battle? Do you remember Samson? A man who made several mistakes, yet God was able to conquer so many Philistines with his life? Or what about Saul? The man who would later become Paul and after spending so much time persecuting Christians could promote the cause of Christianity as an apostle of Christ. You remember the words that God spoke to that apostle, to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9? He said, My power is made perfect in weakness. God can accomplish a great deal through imperfect followers. In fact, we don't have to look too far to find God doing that very thing even today. Over the past few weeks, I've tried to keep track of people that God has been able to use in mighty ways. And in 1972, when a tragic accident caused a young boy who was riding a bike to be killed, his family rallied behind a vision that that boy had of providing a place that had wide open spaces for children to play, especially those children who came from broken homes and difficult family backgrounds. Well, that has now become the Timothy Hill Children's Ranch that several here are very close to. And that is a special place in so many hearts. It's a ranch in New York that is becoming a premier institution for dealing with those from difficult family situations. It started with God working through a group of His people. In fact, in this very city, in the 1940s, I read recently about a group of people who came together and decided to plant a church in downtown Nashville the Central Church of Christ. And they decided they were going to have a preaching service every day at noon. Every day of the week. Monday through Saturday, and then of course worship on Sunday. They baptized over 8,000 in a nine-year period. They reached so many people through the radio waves as those sermons were broadcast. In fact, it said that you could go in through towns in Middle Tennessee, walk down Main Street, and hear sermons being broadcast on the radios of the downtown business establishments. Isn't it amazing what God can do through a few of His followers? We're supporting missionaries even now. Brad and Estelle Willits, who are spending their time, God is using just a few people to translate His Word into a dialect that has never been translated into before, that they haven't been able to read the Bible in their own words until now. 
And the Willises are in Africa doing just that. God is using his followers to accomplish his purpose. But you know, we don't even have to go that far away. As you've been able to observe, we've had some changes and some renovations in the library. James Beckham has painted it for us, and Shannon Buckner is leading that ministry. I had the privilege of going through some of our old bulletins. And I should have done that as soon as I got here because it was incredibly interesting. But I want to share with you a little bit from the April 18th, 1944 issue of the Mount Juliet Message. Now, we couldn't find a copy of the first one, but here is the second one. It begins, here is the second edition of our little church paper. We've decided to call it the Mount Juliet Message. The name Mount Juliet should immediately attract the attention of anyone who has ever lived or visited here, and we intend to do our very best to make the message interesting and profitable for you. And listen to this paragraph that describes previous week's church attendance. The church register shows that our contribution last Sunday was $26.83 and the attendance, 82. Both figures are above the average. Let's keep them growing. Sixty years later, in this auditorium this morning, we had 600 more than met on that Sunday that they're talking about in 1944. We have a budget that invests thousands of dollars in the Lord's work here and abroad. And it's all here. God has blessed us with it because of the work 60 years ago of a small and a dedicated group of Christians who were here, who were doing God's will before I was born, before many of us in here were born, before many of our parents were born. There were Christians here that were doing God's work. Isn't it amazing what God can do through a group of dedicated followers. We're all standing on the shoulders of those who rode in the Mount Juliet message. And we're there because of God's grace and because of His work through the lives of His followers. You see, if we can keep these three aspects in mind, if we, rem- if we avoid a failure to see what God has given us, if we make sure we don't focus on the size of our challenges rather than the size of our God, if we remember what God can accomplish through imperfect followers, we can avoid that failure of imagination. As we close this evening, I just want to remind us of two things that happened after the spies came back with their report. Number one, there was a group of Israelites who decided they were going to go into the land anyway. They were scared of what God had said when He had told them what was going to happen to them, and they decided they were going to go in, and when they did so, against the wishes of God, they were utterly defeated. They came back in shame and defeat. Years later, As they entered into the promised land, Caleb, you remember him, the one who spoke up and said we could enter it, Caleb was given the land of Hebron as a reward. And he makes that famous statement in the book of Joshua when he goes up to Joshua and he says, give me this mountain. He remembers God's promise. And he says, give me this mountain. And he receives his reward, his inheritance. He helps drive some of those remaining individuals out of Hebron. And that land belongs to him and to his family. Our faithfulness will be rewarded. Maybe not in this lifetime, but it will be rewarded. Tonight we get to choose which group we want to be in. Do we want to be in a group that ignores the wishes of God? Or do we want to be in the group that's faithful to what God has already promised us? God has promised the gift of salvation. In fact, it's something we can be sure of. But the only way we can be sure of it is to follow the plan that God has set into motion. That He's given us in His Word when we decide to turn our lives around, to put them on in baptism, we can receive an inheritance and a promised land that's far better than any promised land we read about in the Old Testament that was a physical promised land of a temporary nature. This is an eternal one. 
We can spend an eternity in our promised land. Our faithfulness will be rewarded. And if you need to make a decision of which group you want to be in, if you want to decide to have the faith of a Joshua and of a Caleb, to imagine what God can do through your lives, let's all leave here changed and determined in the coming year, in 2005, to allow God to work through us. Who knows what could happen in this church by this time next year if we allow God to work through us. I don't know what your situation is this evening, but all of us have a great deal to think about. If there's any response you'd like to make publicly, please do so as we stand and as we sing.